Good morning. Well, welcome from me as well. My name is Tim, if we haven't met before. I'm one of the uh, six elders that we have in this church, soon to be uh, joined by two more elders, which is exciting. Uh, we have two more elders that are going to be joining the team, and I um, encourage you to be praying for, for Nick and Tommy, as that is uh, in the coming months. We're going to be looking in uh, <laughs> Hebrews 11, and we'll be in chapter 7. Uh, it's great to see people um, baptized this morning, wonderful stories, wonderful stories of God's faithfulness. And again, we're looking through this series at, uh, at stories of people who God was faithful to. And today, it's uh, an interesting parallel of Noah we're looking at today, who God brought through the waters a picture of salvation in there that we'll look at later on. But as you're turning to Hebrews 11, let me pray for us. Father, uh, I thank you that you are with us this morning. Father, we, we rely on you to speak to us. We rely on you to help us. We rely on your presence. If we are here as a social club, what's the point? God, we need to meet with the living God this morning. We cry out to you, Holy Spirit, to move hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear. Help us to be sensitive to your leading. Help us to hear with faith. The Bible talks about hearing with faith. Help us to not hear with cynicism, skepticism, but hear with faith this morning. I pray that move us on from one degree of glory to the next. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the backdrop that we've talked about in recent weeks is that we're going through this chapter, this famous chapter, and this book was written to Jewish believers uh, at a time where they were feeling persecution and they were tempted to shrink back, tempted to give in uh, to fear. And the whole point of this book is don't shrink back. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't sit down. No, stand up. God is faithful. And let me show you how he is faithful. It's, it's, it's going to be a season for us where hopefully we'll get a clearer picture of what faith is. We'll get a clearer picture of uh, what it is, and we will be encouraged in faith. We'll be provoked to be people of faith that stand, that act, that make decisions by faith. Indeed, if your faith does not reshape your life, if your faith doesn't shape your life, it is not true faith. This is why Hebrews 11, it focuses more on what people did than on their theology. We go through again and again and again stories of what people did in faith. Yes, of course, faith is deeply theological, but it must also be more than that. We've got to be more than people who, who sort of mentally believe things. It's, it's more than mental assent. It, it's not enough to merely agree with God and his word from a distance. As we heard last week, if you really believe that he exists and that he really will reward those who seek him, in other words, that he really is worthy of being trusted, then it will cause you to live in radical ways. If you really believe that he lives, that he's alive, and that he rewards those who seek him, then it will impact your life in radical ways. We even read that without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without this kind of faith, that actually puts weight on his promises, that actually leans on him. It's impossible to please God. We cannot know him unless, sorry, we cannot please him unless we, we know him, unless we relate to him. And we've looked in recent weeks at how we can amaze God. 
Pictures in the, in the Gospels of Jesus being amazed by people, amazed at the faith of the centurion, amazed at the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, who, who, who initially Jesus pushed back and she pushed through. And Jesus was amazed at her faith and granted her what she had asked for. We see Jesus again and again say to people, your faith, as Nick said last week, your faith has healed you. Jesus said to the woman who was bleeding. And he said it to other people. Faith was a huge deal to Jesus. He he wants people to believe him and to believe that he is God. That is the essence of what he's looking for from us. Do you trust me? Do you see me as who I say I am and who I actually am? And sometimes that has to be in the backdrop of a, a culture or a society that ignores him or that hates him. And many of the people that we look through, look to in chapter 11 of Hebrews were such people that were living in a time where no one else was seeking God. No one else was believing God. But they stood out. And last week the writer looked at Genesis 4 and 5 with Abel and Enoch. And now we're on to Genesis 6 with Noah. But I'm going to read from Hebrews 11:7, And we're not going to jump into Genesis just yet. So let's look at this verse, one verse. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I'm going to read it one more time, but this time in the message uh, version, the paraphrase, because it just helps us to think about it from a different angle. He says this, By faith Noah built a ship in the middle of dry land. He was warned about something he couldn't see, and he acted on what he was told. The result? His family was saved. His act of faith drew a sharp line between the evil of the unbelieving world and the rightness of the believing world. As a result, Noah became intimate with God. It's beautiful, isn't it? Think about it that way. Wow. Noah, he, he couldn't see, but he acted on what was told. And, and, and as a result, his family was saved. And as a result of that, he became intimate with God. So this one, one verse, it has six or seven significant uh, sections to it. And we're going to look at three things in particular. But again, we're reminded at the outset, by faith. And we're going to see that again and again and again through this chapter. By faith, this is what people were able to hold to, to accomplish, to believe, to reject, to build. This is what people were able to do by faith as they trusted God. As they trusted in what was unseen, as we heard in, chapter, in verse 1. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. It's a deference to God in the face of a society or a world that is perhaps ignoring God or hating God. And we see here, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear. Firstly, we're going to look at in reverent fear, humble faith, reverent fear. What does this mean? Many of us struggle with this concept Uh, And we wonder, what does it mean that I'm supposed to fear God? The Bible says over and over again that it is good to fear God. And people struggle with the concept. Christians struggle with it. We think, is this about before I was a Christian? Am I supposed to still fear God while I'm a Christian? 
Some people ask, is this, are I supposed to fear the Old Testament God, but, but not the New Testament God, as if they're two different gods? Uh, it, it does say in the New Testament to fear God as well, just to answer that one. I asked my kids yesterday, um, we were at Suffolk Food Hall, and I was chatting to them, I said, tomorrow I'm going to speak on fearing God. Do you think we should fear God? And two out of the three said yes, and one said no. And the one, who said, one of the ones who said yes said, yeah, we should, we should rightly fear God. And he started to talk about respect. And he started to talk about honoring, and I thought, good, I'm glad you've got that side of it. And the one who said no said no, because he's on our side. And I thought, great, that's a great mixture of right thinking of we don't fear him, we do fear him, we don't fear him, we do fear him, we, we, we don't, we're not scared of him. But let's look into it more because the Bible has more help than my children do. <laughs> Isaiah, that's what we're here to learn from, not my kids. Uh, Isaiah 6 is a great picture for us of understanding what the fear of the Lord looks like. As, as Isaiah, this great uh, uh, prophet, has this vision in which he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. I saw God on his throne. I saw his robe filling the temple. And apparently, uh, it's possible that he might have been alluding to uh, an age-old thing where if a king defeated another king, he would have his robe sewed onto the hem of his robe. So, so uh, there's something maybe in there that he's saying, yes, it was glorious and beautiful, but this is the power of this king as well. His robe outdoes everybody. He fills the temple. And above him flew seraphim. Now, I don't know what these are, other than I think they're some angelic being, but they have six wings. They're pretty awesome. And when they shout, when they cry out, they shake the temple. So they are mighty creatures. And these seraphim, they are flying above the Lord, and they are shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And with two of their wings, they're covering their face, because they dare not look at the one on the throne. And with two of their wings, they're covering their feet, because they are in reverent fear. And we're not talking about humans here. We're talking about mighty creatures, standing before the throne of God, saying, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the temple shakes. It fills with smoke. These were powerful and mighty creatures. And yet, they are in reverence of the one on the throne. Sometimes we can not know how to hold this. We can think, isn't God like basically a, a Santa in the sky? Isn't he kind of a doddering old uh, kind of grandfather figure, just smiles at us? Isn't his job just to love us and sweep things under the rug and overlook things? And then we see a picture like this and we think, oh, I've got to readjust my thinking. I've got to understand how he reveals himself to be. Think of stories like where Moses said to God as they spoke, he said, can I see your glory? And God said to him, no man can see me and live. You can't even see him and stay alive. It would just instantly end your life to see God. And yet God says, but if you hide in the cleft of the rock, I'll pass by you. You'll get a glimpse of my back. And you know what it says? Moses came down from the, from the mountain after this had happened, and his face shone 
radiated the glory of God because he saw a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of the back of God. And he shone so much that people said, put a veil over yourself. It's awesome wonder of this glorious God who he was able to walk with and talk with. And we start to see something of the awesome holiness of God. And we understand he's not a Santa in the sky. He's not an old cheerful man who just sort of says, I'll do, you know, boys will be boys. You get on with what you're doing. No, he's God and he's on a throne. And perhaps it might help you to think of something like this. I don't know how, what you're like with heights. I'm not amazing with heights. I'm not terrible with heights, but I'm not amazing with heights. And recently we were flying to South Africa. We got to go for a family holiday, which was wonderful. And uh, as we were flying over the Swiss Alps, we got to see them out the window. I think there's a picture and it was just awesome. This awesome sight of these huge, huge mountains, thousands of feet below. And I was, we, we all looked, we were, wow, look at these, look at these pictures. You know, kids, get off the screens, look out the window. It was just, wow, awesome sight to see. Beauty and wonder. But also in that moment, I was very aware of my mortality. As I looked out and I thought, there's thousands of feet below. I, I'm hanging on to some engines that will hopefully hold out for this trip. I, I'm looking through about three plastic panes. That's between me and that. I, I, it's awesome splendor, and yet very aware of my frailty in comparison. And kind of in comparison to the mountains as well. Just awesome. But then in that picture, as you can see, it almost just looks like the texture of the earth. Suddenly you raise up above and you think, wow. And to be honest, I've been on, to, I've been on the top of this mountain, uh, this mountain, this building before. I've been on top of mountains before. And, and uh, I'm not great with getting near the edge of a sheer drop. I don't know what you're like. I don't even like it when other people do. <laughs> I'm like, do you have to stand there, please? Because you just know one moment, one false step, one weird jerky movement, and, and that's it. And if there's ever going to be a contest between me and the concrete below, there's only going to be one winner. The ground will not move for me. The ground will not budge. It is, in a sense, unchanging. And this is something about what there is for the fear of the Lord who is unchanging. He doesn't budge for us. He's not the one who says, how would you like it? How would you like me to behave? And I'll behave that way. No, he's the one who says, this is how it is. And if I hit the ground at 50 miles an hour after falling down, the ground's not going to budge for me. The ground's not after me. It's not out to get me. That's not the type of fear we're talking about. We're talking about it is unchanging. The difference between honoring and respecting and think, uh, that and thinking the ground is out to get me they're different things. It's not that the ground hates me. No. It's just not going to alter or change for me. And it's wise for me to acknowledge that. It's wise for us to acknowledge that God is unchanging. He is the ancient of days. We are not. And so as we look at this, we understand something of the reverence that Noah had here. And this is why C.S. Lewis uses a lion in his Narnia stories to reflect something of the might and power, the roar that happens occasionally in those stories where Aslan changes a whole uh, decision that's being made just by roaring. Okay, okay, okay. But he was good. Famous line, is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. 
the ground, oh, sorry, jumping around here. The girls in that story do actually run their hands through his mane. They feel his breathing. They are able to get close to him. They know, as my son said, he's on their side. And there's a difference there with that kind of fear. You don't start playing with his teeth, perhaps, but maybe you might run your hand through his mane. There's a great story in Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, where uh, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're transporting it, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant was the Ark, not like the Ark that Noah built. It was a box, a small box, uh, plated with gold, and it had artifacts inside it. And it was the vessel that God said, I, "I cannot be with you in person. You cannot stand my presence, and my presence cannot stand sin. So I cannot be with you in person." but you can have my presence with you in this box. It will be a picture of my presence with you, and it will be powerful. It will be mighty. And it's so important that you understand the gravity of my presence with you. So they had to make it very precisely, and then they had to not touch it. They're not allowed to touch this. So they had to get two poles and slide them down so they could lift it up and put it on the oxen's back, and two oxen would carry it along. And in this story, uh, they're they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, an oxen stumbles, and a man named named Uzzah, he thinks it's going to fall. So he reaches out to grab it and stop it, and he instantly dies. And we can think, what? What's going on there? God, he's trying to stop it, right? He's respecting you. He's trying to, he's trying to uh, make sure it doesn't fall. And yet again, the point is that God doesn't, he doesn't change for us. He cannot alter for us. He has decreed things, they will stay as he's decreed them to be. He has announced things, and, and, and we, he doesn't alter for us. He doesn't change if we ignore him. And perhaps that might speak to some of you today as you feel aware that maybe even lately you've, you've thought, I know what God says, but I don't like it. I know what God decrees, but I don't agree with it, actually. I think I know better. But the Bible says God opposes the proud. And there's something there that should sober us. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We must recognize God for who he is, recognizing that he is God and that we are not. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is the rock of ages. He is unchanging. And he has said how the world will be. He has said who he is. He has decreed. And some of us might think, this this doesn't sound very nice. (laughs) It sounds a bit oppressive, perhaps. I tell you, to be honest, when I was just looking at this this week and praying into this, I was saying, I was praying, God, I, I don't find this story comfortable. The Noah story in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, I don't find it comfortable. We look at the kids' books and we see a rainbow. We see animals smiling and going two by two with their tails waggling and a giraffe sticking its head out. And we think, oh, great. But you read the story, it's death. It's judgment. It's God saying, I can't live with this wicked generation. I'm going to press restart. We don't see in the children's books the dead bodies alongside, floating. It just would have been horrific. The judgment of God is terrifying. And we can think, I don't know how to handle this. 
But as I, as I want to encourage you here, if you don't know how to handle things in the Bible, the thing is not to throw it out. The thing is to say, God, help me to understand this. And as, even as I did, just praying about this week, I thought, God almost said to me, Tim, you don't understand how holy I am. You don't understand how offensive sin is to me. You think I just should brush it away. You think I should get over it. I am holy. We have to understand the holiness of God more than we do. My, my laptop, there we go. But I want to encourage you from Psalm 111. Psalm 111 is, is beautiful, and it just talks about this, uh, this fear of God. It says this. Listen to the heart of this. Listen to the wonder of this. Praise the Lord, says the psalmist. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. That does not sound like someone who's oppressed. That sounds like someone says, I found the one I can put my trust in. I found the one I can put my hope in. He won't bend or shape or, or, or change shape. He, he won't falter. He is faithful. He is the same. What he decrees is true. He, what he commands is true. He, what are some of the phrases in here? Um, full of splendor and majesty is his work. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He's gracious and merciful. He's shown his people the power of his works, giving them inheritance. The works of his hands are faithful and just. I found the one who's faithful. I found the one who's not going to change. I found the one who's not going to uh, alter depending on his mood. He's faithful and true. This is the difference between us saying, I'll figure it out myself versus I will listen. I will learn. I will follow. Noah didn't figure it out himself. He didn't say, okay, God, yeah, good idea. I get the gist of it. Now I'll figure it out myself. No, he, he in reverent fear, built an ark. Now, I love fearing God. I love fearing God as I've learned more about what fearing God means. It means that I hold to truth. I hold to goodness. He is good, as we said about Aslan. He's not safe, but he's good. We need a God who is to be feared and honored and revered because he is who he is. It's one of his names. I am that I am. I am that I am. It's not that I'm wobbly, not, not, shake, not shakeable. It's not that you're going to get this God one day and this God the next day. It's not that you're going to get this God one millennia and this God the next millennia. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am that I am. He's not different from one day to the next. He's faithful to his ways. He's faithful to his character. He's faithful to his promises. He's the only holy and righteous God. And I'm reverent of a God 
that doesn't change. I'm reverent of a God that doesn't change. I think, great, there's one that doesn't change. I would be petrified of a God who changed. That's the difference between reverence and petrified. A God who was untrustworthy. A God who couldn't be sure would keep his word or keep his promises. Who might change his mind at any moment. That would be a different type of fear altogether. He is upright. He's righteous. He's holy. He's unchanging. He will not bend. He will not falter. He will not grow faint or grow weary. He's the everlasting God. We need godliness that keeps covenants, don't we? In this day where we think what somebody says from one minute to the next minute, who cares, whatever I feel like. Where we see things like marriages, even like I think 50% or something, probably worse, I don't even know, the latest statistics. Just think we need to understand the importance of keeping covenant. I can give my allegiance and my life to a God like that. And Noah, in reverent fear, built an ark. So let's look secondly. Noah did what he was told. Noah did what he was called to do by God. It was the fear of God, the reverence of God's decree. God's warning caused Noah to act. He understood who God was. He thought, I'm going to act on what God said. He made radical choices that changed his life. He had to make practical choices. As Nick talked to us about last week, and as we will hear throughout this series, and as I've said already this morning, it's not about mental assent. It's not about agreeing from a distance. No, faith will cause me to make decisions, to change my life, to make practical choices. It's interesting. If you, if you, you, know, you look in the Bible, you see lists of names. You see numbers often. You see measurements of things. And sometimes we might think, why does it keep these things in here? We don't need that. But think about the measurements. The measurements show us, yeah, there's a practicality. You need the measurements because it's actually God's asking you to do things, actually to work out things, to walk out things, to stand in, in specific practical decisions. And think about what Noah had to go through. He was told to do something. He had to then put down his tools for farming, and pick up his tools for ark making, whatever that was. It would have been back-breaking work, painful work. Sometimes we think following God, surely it won't be difficult. This man in faith, revering God, fearing God, knew, I'm going to trust him. He's calling me to do something. It's not going to be easy, but I know it's for the sake of life. I know it's for the sake of my ultimate joy. God calls us into work. It would have been back-breaking in and of itself. And it would have been mind-bending to think measurements. How does that fit with that? And how does that work with that? I mean, have you ever put an Ikea cupboard together? I struggle with those. Having to make an ark, sourcing your own wood, finding the... I mean, it would have been mind-bending for him. And that's before we think about how it looked to other people. He must have looked ridiculous. He's making an ark, and as we read in the message version, he built a ship in dry, on dry land. Mocked and questioned by others. Probably mocked by his own family. Are you sure, Dad? What, are you sure? What, uh, there's been no drop of rain for decades. And he must have at times thought, I know. 
I know. God's spoken. God's spoken. That was the only thing that he held on to. Decades of serious effort before even one drop of rain. This was a man who persevered in costly obedience. It was costly to him, but he was going to obey in reverence to God. He accepted God's assessment. And he distanced himself from, and again, listen to this, because your faith needs to do the same and our faith needs to do the same. He distanced distanced himself from distraction. Yeah, okay, I'll build that ark. I'll get to it. Like most of our, our garages or lofts. I'll get to that. He could have been distracted. He could have been in denial. Or he could have just given in to personal preference. I don't really want to do that. Or emotion. But God had spoken. God doesn't change. And Noah believed this. And Noah acted. Now think about this. Noah built an ark. And I don't think when God said to him, Noah, I want you to build an ark, that Noah said, oh, that makes sense. Because my great-great-grandfather was an ark maker. Uh, My grandfather was an ark maker. My father was an ark maker. So obviously I'll be an ark maker. No, no. When God said, I want you to make an ark, Noah said, you want me to make a what? There had never been an ark before. We can overlook these sorts of things. That God called him to make something that he had to have faith to even understand what this thing is. I don't know what you're calling me to. This was totally unprecedented. There was no model for Noah. There was no, oh, an ark like my neighbor made last week. No, no, make what I'm calling you to make. Noah was not imitating anyone else. And that's important for us to recognize faith cannot be imitation. You're not called to stand in faith by imitating somebody else. Now, do hear what I'm saying rightly here. We do encourage one another's faith. We do inspire one another's faith. We do even teach faith. I don't like that whole nonsense where people say, my children must find God for themselves. It's completely unbiblical. We're supposed to lead our children to God. Now, they have to believe God for themselves. They have to find God for themselves. We we cannot imitate somebody else's faith. In fact, that would undermine what faith is altogether. We can be inspired and encouraged and even taught in faith, but it must be our own obedience. It must be our own faith. There will be obstacles for you that you will have to overcome in faith that nobody else around you has to overcome. Maybe an experience you've been through and you think, it takes me a lot of faith to believe that God is for me from what I've experienced. That could be something of a challenge of faith that you've got, that people around you haven't got. It could be that God calls you to build something. It could be that God calls you to refuse something. Or God calls you to uh, uh, encourage others in something. I mean, many different expressions of faith, and we see that throughout Hebrews 11. Each person in their different ways show us different ways that God was faithful. It's the same God It's the same way to the Father. Yes, it's the same Jesus, as we sang. It doesn't mean that faith will always look the same. We have to hear God for ourselves. God, what have you got for me? And perhaps if you're here today and you think, well, I've just kind of gone through the motions and kind of come with my parents and trusted in their faith, God's saying, I want to know you. I've got things for you. I want to call you into 
what did we hear Amanda saying? Adventure, or, or, or I can't remember the word she used, but God has got a plan for me. He's got a plan for you that he wants you to walk in. Noah, he, he gave him directions that no one had ever heard before. He couldn't rely on anybody else's faith. And let's look at God's directions to Noah in Genesis 6. It says this, it should be on the screen as well. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. And its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And then verse 19. And of every living thing... Of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping, creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take them with you. Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now listen to this last sentence, as it's probably on the screen. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah didn't say after the first sentence, yeah, I get the gist, you want me to make a boat? Leave it to me. No, God gave directions, specific, specific, specific. This is how I've called it to be, this is how I want it to be, and I'm calling you to build a certain way. And Noah said, yes, Lord, I will do this, he did all that God commanded him. That's challenging to us. God has called you to build things. What has he called you to build? And how has he called you to build? How has he called us to build our lives? How has he spoken to us? Do we say, yeah, I get the gist. Be nice to people and you'll get into heaven. Completely missing. No, not at all. It's not even what it says. Do we understand, what have you called me to do specifically, God? What is my life's calling? Where do you want to take me? And How do you want me to trust you? And what do you want me to believe? I mean, Noah could have said, go for wood. Go for wood was out decades ago, God. We don't use that anymore. We've moved on. God, catch up with the times. You hear that a lot these days. God, catch up with the times. He could have said, go for wood is miles away. We've got all this pine right here. No, no, he did all that was commanded of him. What kind of faith have you got? Will you be someone who says, yeah, I kind of, you know, I, I, I chop and change things a bit. I, got, I, get, I get the gist of it. Someone says, I want to study this. I want to study him. I want to know him. What is he calling me to? Because the outcome was pretty important, wasn't it? The outcome is very important for us. In Matthew 7, Jesus uh, gives this parable kind of story, as I'm sure most of us have heard before, on this point. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and the boat and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been found on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Who hears Jesus' words? Churchgoers. It's not enough to be a churchgoer. Who hears his words and puts them into application and walks and trusts and changes their choices because they've heard and changed their lives. They've heard his words and done them. The, the passage before that where Jesus says uh, that story is, is chilling, where Jesus says, there will be a day when many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, away from me, I never knew you. People who assume, I'm, I'm in the in crowd. You know, my parents are churchgoers. You know, I, I, I've, I, I've done work for charities. No, no, you've got to hear my words. You've got to understand. You've got to know me. You've got to do them. Live wisely. Be prepared. Be like Noah. Listen. What have I got to do? I've got to write that down. How long? How many cubits? I've got to make sure. Yeah, okay. What kind of wood? Yes, Lord. Reverent fear brought him safely through. It's true for you in your situation. It's true for us as the church. What has God called us to do? God, what has God called us to do in Hope Church in Ipswich? He hasn't called us to make a crowd. He hasn't called us just to have a nice building. That's not going to get us anywhere. It's going to be lovely, and I praise God for it, and I praise God for nice crowds of people. But Jesus didn't say, go and make crowds. He said, make disciples. We must build the church the way God has called us to build. What do you want us to do, Lord? Yes, Lord, let me write it down. What have you got next? Yes, I want to do all that he's commanded us to do. How are we supposed to build the church? Not necessarily by lots of clever uh, and, uh, I don't know, funny and different uh, ideas that catch people's attention online. No, by, by loving one another, by serving one another, by admonishing one another. By speaking the truth in love to one another. This is how he's called us to build the church. We're going to build how he's called us to build? What are you going to build it on? What's our foundation? We're going to say, well, it's all about community. It's all about people. I want to just warn us of that. Yes, we want to love one another. But I love, I love this quote from D.A. Carson who says this. If the gospel is merely assumed while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion... We will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. In fact, if we focus on the gospel, we shall soon see that this gospel, rightly understood, directs us how to think about and what to do about a substantial array of other issues. These issues, if they are analyzed on their own, as important as they are, remain relatively peripheral. Ironically, if the gospel itself is deeply pondered and remains at the center of our thinking and living, it powerfully addresses and wrestles with all these other issues. He's saying there we've got to have the foundation of the gospel. It's got to be we preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's our only hope. My hope is not that I'm an elder of a church and that I speak sometimes. I can't go once I die and get to the gates of heaven and say, I was an elder. No, I, I know him. He died for my sins. He rose again in new life and I'm in him. And what D.A. Carson is telling us there is if our foundation, if our central point is the gospel and Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead, then that will play into, yes, our community. Yes, our social justice. Yes, all the other things that we do. They've got to be revolving in the gospel. 
We've got to build our church the way he has called us to. Noah built the ark the way Jesus, uh, God called him to. And what was the result? What was the result? The saving of his family. It reminds me of what Mary said at the wedding, a wedding at Cana, when Jesus turned water into wine. What did she say to the people? Do whatever he tells you to do. Imagine they hadn't. They wouldn't have seen that awesome, awesome display of the water being turned to wine and all the connotations that came with that. Thirdly and finally, this is where humble faith leads. Humble faith leads to new life. For the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Enduring faith, humble faith, reverent faith, it leads to salvation. It leads to new life. It leads to life eternal. Noah saved his family. He, he, his faith, it brought his family through judgment and in to safety. We remember what this book is about. This book of Hebrews is about, uh, is, is this letter to the Hebrews is written to encourage them. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Don't let go of your, uh, your, your grasp on Jesus. Hold firm. Hold fast your confession. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let go. And as he does, he talks through, uh, Jesus is the greater, the greater, he's greater than the angels. He's got a greater message. He's greater than the priests that have come before him. He's greater than all the sacrifices that are pointed to him. He, is, he comes with a greater covenant. Remember, this, this is the picture of this book that we're reading through. And in chapter 11, this sermon that he's kind of teaching through, he, he reminds us that Jesus is the greater man of faith. As we look at these men and women of faith, Jesus is the greater Noah. That's what the point of this is for us to look, like, look at here. It's supposed to point us to Jesus. Remember what this book is for. It's lifting Jesus up, it's urging believers, don't let go, don't shrink back. Jesus is what you need. He is the one it has all been pointing towards. He is the greater Noah. Noah points us to Jesus. I mean, think of the picture. Maybe many of you have put this together as I've been talking and you've thought about the baptism. There is the judgment coming on the earth in Genesis 6. There's this horrendous judgment coming on the earth. The, 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 the Bible says that God cannot just let sin carry on. It must be judged. And that's right. We need justice. And yet we know this is still the case, that there will be justice poured out. There will be judgment poured out on the earth. The earth is wicked, and sin dominates people's hearts at this time. And we would say, look around and say, yes, sin dominates hearts. Judgment must be carried out. God will judge the world, but one family is saved. One family is rescued. Who are they? Are they special? Are they special ones? No. Are they righteous ones? No. They are the ones that are with Noah. That's all it is. They're the ones that are with Noah. I mean, imagine years later after the flood, you know, they lived for hundreds of years then, and someone asks one of the children, how, how did you get through? How did you get through that judgment? How, did you, how are you here? He would say, I was with Noah. I was with him. I was with the righteous man. I was with the one who walked with God. I was with the one who knew God. The one who did everything God commanded him 
to do. Noah points us to the righteous one, the righteous one, the one who did everything that God called him to do because we couldn't. The one who walked with God, the one who was righteous for our sake. The one, it says in Philippians 2, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that we could be found in him. So that he could be our ark as the torrent of God's wrath and devastating judgment was poured out. He was the one who took it on himself. And he says to us, come and hide in me. Come and know the safety of being in me. Don't be on the other side. Don't think that you can get through this on your own. There was no man that would be able to say, I got through that judgment because I'm a good swimmer. It's just not possible. That, that is just too much. There's no way that on our own we can get through, but there is provision for us in Jesus. Noah points us to Jesus. He's the one that they would say got us through. He was the one that they would say I was with. I'm a family member of Noah's. He got me through. And we can say Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. I call you sons, I call you daughters, I call you brothers. We're family members of him when we say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. And as we do, he says, right, family members, come through with me. You're with me. He took the flood upon himself so that we could know the flood of God's love. And we're going to sing a song just now, really, the band could come up. We're going to sing a song that's first uh, verse is, Here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. The ancient of days is seated on the throne. The ancient of the days has said, it is finished. It is accomplished. I have done what you could never done. I am the righteous one. Now come and hide in me. Get behind me. Let, let, let me take the punishment upon myself for you so that you can go free. You know what Noah means? Noah means rest. Noah means rest. He's the, he's the lesser Jesus. He points us to the greater Noah, the greater rest that comes in Christ. We're going to sing that song. We're going to just clarify. We're going to declare to one another, to ourselves, we're going to declare to God, this is the love I need. This is the love I need. And we're going to trust him. I just wonder whether we need to, some of us need to pray. God, help us. Help us not to shrink back as we think of who you are. Perhaps I'll just pray for you now and we can sing together. Father, as we think of who you are, we think the ancient of days, the holy, holy, holy God, who we could not stand in the presence of without being instantly killed and yet you've said I'm making a way I'm making a way for you as in Hebrews it says that we could boldly approach this throne of grace with confidence because we have a great high priest who's gone through the waters for us I do pray this morning that you would help us to not shrink back help us to see if he is on my side if God is for us who can be against us 
He is not an embarrassment. He is God on the throne and he is for me. He is the host of heaven and he is for me. He is with me. And when he roars, everything else steps back. Help us, God, to not shrink back. Help us to rightly revere you, Father. Help us to rightly understand what it is to fear God and to stand rightly to our feet with our chests out. Yes, I fear God, but he's on my side. Help us to fearfully and wisely obey you and not pick and choose where we would do that. Help us to, like Moses, say, what are the measurements? What exactly do you want me to do? I will follow it to a T. You are God, I am not. You know what's coming, I don't. I want to follow you for our good and for your glory. And help us to have rest in the provision that you have given. Pray now as we sing that you would help us to experience the rest for our souls that we need in Jesus. The giver of life. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. I just pray again, if there's anybody here this morning, Lord, who knows, I'm in danger. I'm in danger. Help them not to be inactive about that, to be passive about that, but to say, God, I want to run to you and ask forgiveness, ask you to take me in, ask you to be my vessel of salvation. I need you. God, we pray for salvation here today. Ask that people might say, I find myself in him, like we heard in these baptism stories. I'm in him. I'm in him. I'm in him. I want to tell the whole world I'm in him. He loves me. Lord, let other people find that to be true of them today in Jesus' name. Amen.